Section 29 of The Waning of the Middle Ages, A Study of the Forms of Life, Thought, and Art in France and the Netherlands in the 14th and 15th centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Ben Dowling, The Waning of the Middle Ages by Johann Huizinga. Translated by Frederick Jan Hopman. Chapter 23. The Advent of New Form. The transition from the spirit of the declining Middle Ages to humanism was far less simple than we are inclined to imagine it. Accustomed to oppose humanism to the Middle Ages, we would gladly believe that it was necessary to give up the one in order to embrace the other. We find it difficult to fancy the mind cultivating the ancient forms of medieval thought and expression while aspiring at the same time to antique wisdom and beauty. Yet this is just what we have to picture to ourselves. Classicism did not come as a sudden revelation. It grew up among the luxuriant vegetation of medieval thought. Humanism was a form before it was an inspiration. On the other hand, the characteristic modes of thought of the Middle Ages did not die out till long after the Renaissance. In Italy, the problem of humanism presents itself in a most simple form, because there men's minds had ever been predisposed to the reception of antique culture. The Italian spirit had never lost touch with classic harmony and simplicity. It could expand freely and naturally in the restored forms of classic expression. The Quattrocento, with its serenity, makes the impression of a renewed culture, which has shaken off the fetters of medieval thought, until Savonarola reminds us that below the surface of the Middle Ages still subsist. The history of French civilization of the 15th century, on this contrary, does not permit us to forget the Middle Ages. France had been the motherland of all that was strongest and most beautiful in the products of the medieval spirit. All medieval forms, feudalism, the ideas of chivalry and courtesy, scholasticism, Gothic architecture were rooted here much more firmly than ever they had been in Italy. In the 15th century, they were dominating still. Instead of the full, rich style, the blindness and the harmony characteristic of Italy in the Renaissance, here it is bizarre pomp, cumbrous forms of expression, a worn-out fancy, and an atmosphere of melancholy gravity which prevail. It is not the Middle Ages, it is the new coming culture, which might easily be forgotten. In literature, classical forms could appear without the spirit having changed. An interest in the refinement of Latin style was enough, it seems, to give birth to humanism. The proof of this is furnished by a group of French scholars about the year 1400. It was composed of ecclesiastics and magistrates. Jean de Monstrul, canon of Lille and secretary to the king, Nicolas de Clamange, the famous denouncer of the abuses in the church, Pierre et Gontier Colonel, the Milanese Ambrose de Milly, and royal secretaries. The elegant and grave epistles they exchange are inferior in no respect, neither in the vagueness of thought, nor in the consequential air, nor in the tortured sentences, nor even in learned trifling, to the epistolary genre of later humanists. Jean de Monstreux spins long dissertations on the subject of Latin spelling. He defends Cicero and Virgil against the criticism of his friend Ambrose de Milly, who had accused the former of contradictions and preferred Ovid to the latter. 
On another occasion, he writes to Clemange, If you do not come to my aid, dear master and brother, I shall have lost my reputation and be as one sentenced to death. I have just noticed that in my last letter to my lord and father, the Bishop of Cambrai, I wrote proximior instead of the comparative propior. So rash and careless is the pen. Kindly correct this, otherwise our detractors will write libels about it. There are more charming passages in his correspondence than this. For example, his description of the monastery of Charyou, near Senli, where he speaks of the sparrows coming to share the monk's repast, the wren which behaves as if it were the abbot, and lastly, the gardener's donkey, which begs the author not forget it in his letter. We may hesitate whether to call this medieval naivety or humanistic elegance. It suffices to recall that we met Jean de Montreux and the brothers Cole among the zealots of the Roman de la Rose, and among the members of the Court of Love of 1401, to be convinced that this primitive French humanism was but a secondary element of their culture, the fruit of scholarly erudition, analogous to the so-called renaissance of classic Latinity of earlier ages, notably the ninth and the twelfth century. The circle of Jean de Montreux had no immediate successors, and this early French humanism seemed to disappear with the men who cultivated it. Still, in its origins, it was to some extent connected with the great international movement of literacy renovation. Petrarch was, in the eyes of Jean de Montreux and his friends, the illustrious initiator Inclusio Salutati, the Florentine chancellor who introduced classicism into official style, was not unknown to them either. Their zeal for classic refinement had evidently been roused not a little by Petrarch's taunt that there were no orators nor poets outside Italy. In France, Petrarch's work had, so to say, been accepted in the medieval spirit and incorporated into medieval thought. He himself had personally known the leading spirits of the second half of the 14th century, the poet Philippe de Vitry, Nicolas Oresme, philosopher and politician, who had been a preceptor to the Dauphin, probably also Philippe de Mezières. These men, in spite of the ideas which make Oresme one of the forerunners of modern science, were not humanists. As to Petrarch himself, we are always inclined to exaggerate the modern element in his mind and work because we are accustomed to see him exclusively as the first of renovators. It is easy to imagine him emancipated from the ideas of his century. Nothing is further from the truth. He is most emphatically a man of his time. The themes of which he treated were those of the Middle Ages. De contemptu mundi de otio religiosorum, de vita solitaria. It is only the form and the tone of his work which differ and are more highly finished. His glorification of antique virtue in his Davidius Illustribus and his Reverum Memorandum Libri corresponds more or less with the chivalrous cult of the Nine Worthies. This is nothing surprising in his being found in touch with the founder of the Brethren of the Common Life, or cited as an authority on a dogmatic point by the fanatic John de Verinay. Denis the Carthusian borrowed laments from him about the loss of the Holy Sepulchre, a typically medieval subject. What contemporaries outside Italy saw in Petrarch was not at all the poet of the sonnets or the Trifioni, but a moral philosopher, a Christian Cicero, 
In a more limited field, the Boccaccio exercised an influence resembling that of Petrarch. His fame, too, was that of a moral philosopher, and by no means rested on the Decameron. He was honored as the doctor of patience and adversity, as the author of De Casibus Vivorum Illustrium, and of De Clarie Mulieribus. Because of these queer writings treating of the inconsistency of human fate, Monsieur Johann Boccaci had made himself a sort of impresario of fortune. As such, he appears to Chastelaine, who gave the name of La Temple de Boccace to the bizarre treatise in which he endeavored to console Queen Margaret after her flight from England, by relating to her a series of tragic destinies of his time. In recognizing in Boccaccio the strongly medieval spirit which was their own, these Burgundian spirits of a century later were not at all off the mark. What distinguishes nascent humanism in France from that of Italy is a difference of erudition, skill and taste, rather than of tone or aspiration. To transplant antique form and sentiment into national literature, the French had to overcome far more obstacles than the people born under the Tuscan sky or in the shadow of the Colosseum. France, too, had her learned clerks writing in Latin, who were capable at an early date of rising to the height of epistolary style. But a blending of classicism and medievalism in the vernacular, such as was achieved by Pisaccio, was for a long time impossible in France. The old forms were too strong, and the general culture still lacked the proficiency in mythology and ancient history which was current in Italy. Machaut, although a clerk, pitifully disfigures the names of the seven sages. Chastelain confounds Peleus with Pelias, Lamarche Proteus with Pirithus. The author of the Pastorelle speaks of the good King Scipio of Africa, but at the same time his subject inspires him with a description of the god Sylvanus and a prayer to Pan, in which the poetical imagination of the Renaissance seems on the point of breaking forth. The chroniclers were already trying their hand at military speeches in Livy's manner, and adorning their narrative of important events by mentioning portents, in close imitation of Livy. Their attempts at classicism did not always succeed. Jean Germain's description of the Arras Congress of 1435 is a veritable caricature of antique prose. The vision of antiquity was still very bizarre. At the funeral service of Charles the Bold at Nancy, his conqueror, the young Duke of Lorraine, came to honor the corpse of his enemy, dressed in antique style, that is to say, wearing a long golden beard which reached his girdle. Thus, got up to represent one of the nine worthies, he prayed for a quarter of an hour. The word antique, as conceived in France about 1400, belonged to the same group of ideas as rhetorique, orateur, and poésie. No one would have thought of applying the word poésie to a ballad or a song in the old French form. This classical word, which evoked the idea of the admired perfection of the ancients, meant above all an artificial form. The poets of this time are perfectly capable of expressing heartfelt emotions in a simple form, but when they wish to attain superior beauty, they hunt up mythology, employ pedantic Latinized terms, and then consider themselves rhetoricians. Christine de Pisson expressly singles out a mythologic piece, which she calls Ballade poétique from her ordinary work, Eustace de Champ, 
wishing to air his talent in sending his works to chaucer his fellow poet and admirer adds the following lines o socrates plains de philosophie seneca en mues et anglou en pratique over these grands enta poetry bries en paler saige en rhetorique aigles traor qui par eta theorique illumines lereng denies l'aile oxygens sules de bruth et chias semele fleur et plant le rosier o ignorance de la langue pandras great translator noble geoffrey chaucer a toi pour se de la fontaine aie requer avoir un bouvrage authentique dont la dois est du en la baile pour affrener de elle ma suif éthique qui en gol serai paralytique du quoi assez que tu ma bouveras footnote o socrates full of philosophy seneca and morals and englishmen in practice great ovid in your poetry brief of speech well versed in rhetoric exalted eagle who by your erudition have illumined the reign of ennes the island End of footnote. this is the beginning modest as yet of the ridiculous latinism which vion and rebellius satirized this insufferable manner reappears whenever authors exert themselves to be exceptionally brilliant in dedications discourse or literary correspondence in this vein chastelaine will write Voste tre et obiasante serve et anciel la via de gan la visceral intime dolor et tribulation footnote your very humble and obedient slave and servant the city of gent the intestinal inward sorrow and tribulation end of footnote le marche nostre francesine locution et langue vernacule footnote our french-born location and vernacular tongue end of footnote molinet a breve de la dulce et mellifique procedant de la fontaine gabeline oe vertu du scipionique gen de mulibre courage footnote having drunk from the sweet and mellifluous liquor proceeding from the equine fountain this virtuous scipionic duke people of multibral courage end of footnote this far-fetched rhetoric testifies both to an ideal literary conversation and to an ideal of style like the troubadours of yore the rhetoricians and the humanists cultivated literature in the form of an all-round game literary correspondence of a rather strange kind springs up fervent admirer of george chastelaine jean robertet secretary to three dukes of bourbon and to three kings of france tried to enter into correspondence with the poet historiographer of the burgundian court by the good office of a certain montferrand who lived at bruges the latter to soften the old author who was at first rather reserved had recourse to the time-honored device of allegory he evoked the twelve dames of rhetoric science eloquence gravity of meaning profundity etc who appeared to him in a vision and told him to exert himself in behalf of the correspondence desired by robertet in the exchange of poetical and rhetorical compliments which followed 
Chastelain's verses are sober when compared with the hyperbolic effusions of Robertet. Frappe en l'oeil d'une clarté terrible, attente sous de d'éloquence incredible, à humain sens difficile à produire, tout offusqué de lumière incredible, autre percantere presque impossible, sur obscure qui jamais ne puit luire, Ravi abstrait me trouve en mon duedwir, en extase corps guisant à la terre, fuabel esperit perplex avoye en quere, potreve lieu et opertion yathwe, dupe estra oye sui mis ansere, pri alarets que amor vierse atisil. Footnote. Struck in the eye by a terrible brightness touched in the heart by incredible eloquence, difficult for the human mind to produce, quite obscured by incendiary light penetrating with almost unbearable rays. End of footnote. To a dark body that can never shine, ravished, distraught, I find myself in my delight, my body in ecstasy lying on the ground, my feeble spirit is at a loss to go in quest of a path in order to find a place and opportune exit. From the narrow pass where I am hemmed in, caught in the toils which true love has nettled. End of footnote. In these terms, he describes the sensations which the arrival of a letter by Chastelaine caused in him. And, continuing in prose, he asks his friend Montferrat, whom he calls friend of the immortal gods, beloved of men, high Ulyssian breast full of mellifluent eloquence. Footnote. Is this not splendor equal to the ore of Phobos? End of footnote. Does he not surpass Orpheus's lyre? And la tube d'Amphion, la mercurial flute qui endormit Argus, o est la seule capable del object visible? L'oreille pour oeil le haut son argentine et tintinable d'or. Footnote. The reed of Amphion, the mercurial flute which caused Argus to sleep. Where is the eye capable of seeing such a physical object? The ear to hear the high silver sound in golden tintinabulation. End of footnote. Chastelaine showed some skepticism as to this raving enthusiasm. Soon he had enough of it, and wanted to bar the gate which had so long been widely opened to Dame Vanity. Robert Tett has quite soaked me by his cloud of which drops congealing like hail make my garments brilliant as with pearls. But what good is it to the dark body underneath when my robe deceives the onlookers? Therefore, let him cease writing in this way, otherwise Chastelaine will throw his letters into the fire without reading them. If he is willing to speak as beseems among friends, he may rest assured of George's affection. Lucubrations of this sort by no means give us the feeling of the measure and harmony of the Renaissance. It all seems to us antiquated in sentiment and style. There is no doubt, however, that these wits considered themselves supremely modern. This Robertet had been in Italy, a country greedy for innovation, on which the meteoric conditions operate to facilitate ornate speech and towards which all elemental sweetness is drawn there to resolve in harmony he evidently believed that the secret of this harmony was in the ornate speech 
and that to the rival Italians it sufficed to bedeck the French style with the ornaments of classicism. Now, in Italy, where language and thought had never been entirely estranged from the pure Latin style, the social environment and the turn of mind were far more congenial to the humanistic tendencies than in France. Italian civilization had naturally developed the type of the humanist. The Italian language was not, like the French, corrupted by an influx of Latinism. It absorbed it without difficulty. In France, on the contrary, the medieval foundations of social life were still solid. The language, much farther removed from Latin than Italian was, refused to be Latinized. If, in English, erudite Latinisms were to find an easy access, it would be because of the very fact that here the language was not of Latin stock at all, so that no incongruity of expression made itself felt. In so far as the French humanists of the 15th century wrote in Latin, the medieval subsoil of their culture is little in evidence. The more completely the classical style is imitated, the more the true spirit is concealed. The letters and the discourse of Robert Gagouin are not distinguishable from the works of other humanists. But Gagouin is, at the same time, a French poet of altogether medieval inspiration and of altogether national style. Whereas, those who did not, and perhaps could not, write in Latin, spoiled their French by Latinized forms. He, the accomplished Latinist, when writing in French, disdained rhetorical effects. His Debat du Libraire du Preste et du Gendarme, medieval in its subject, is also medieval in style. It is simple and vigorous, like Villon's poetry and Deschamps' best work. Who are the true moderns in the French literature of the 15th century? Those, no doubt, whose works approach nearest to what the following century produced of beauty. Assuredly it is not, whatever their merits may have been, the grave and pompous representatives of the Burgundian style, not Chastelaine, Lamarche, Molinet. The novelties of form which they affected were too superficial, the foundation of their thought too essentially medieval, their classical whimsies too naive. Should one look for the modern element in the refinement of form, sometimes this form, though most artificial, has so much grace that the sweet melody makes us forget the emptiness of meaning. Plusieurs bergers sont en la mortelles tels, quets boutes que pour deuit et leurs moutons et un mort fortunés nez, venez, vanez, d'affaires mal parésres, leurs bleds emblés, ayon sauf conduit vuid, la nuit leur nuit. La mort qui destruit ruit, le fruit ayant fuit, venant aspert pert, mais pas nous tient en assurance expert. Footnote. Several shepherds are in such mortal snares, so much knocked and pushed that it little tends to their delight, and their sheep, born in an evil hour, are hunted, exhausted, shorn by ill-sharpened shears, their corn is stolen, having a fruitless safe conduct. The night is noxious to them. Destructive death rushes in. Their fruit flies as open ruin comes, but Pan holds us in his expert protection. End of footnote. This was written by Jean Lemaire de Belges. Much more might be said on this elaboration of a purely formal beauty in poetry. But, taking all in all, it is not here that the future of literature lies. 
if by moderns we understand those who have most affinity with the later development of French literature, the moderns are Villon, Charles Vorlines, and the poet of La Mante Rendure Crodier. Just those who kept most aloof from classicism and who did not strain after over-nice forms. The medieval character of their motifs robed them not in the least of their aspect of youth and of promise. It is the spontaneity of their expression which makes them moderns. Classicism, then, was not the controlling factor in the advent of the new spirit in literature. Neither was paganism. The frequent use of pagan expressions or tropes has often been considered the chief characteristic of the Renaissance. This practice, however, is far older. As early as the 12th century, mythological terms were employed to express concepts of the Christian faith, and this was not considered at all irrelevant or impious. Deschamps speaking of Jupiter come from paradise, Villon calling the Holy Virgin High Goddess, the humanists referring to God in terms like princeps superum, and to Mary as genitrix tonantis, are by no means pagans. Pastorals required some admixture of innocent paganism, by which no reader was duped. The author of Pastorale, who calls the Celestine Church at Paris, the temple in the high woods where people pray to the gods, declares, to dispel all ambiguity, if, to lend my muse some strangeness, I speak of the pagan gods, the shepherds and myself are Christians all the same. In the same way Molinet excuses himself for having introduced Mars and Minerva by quoting, Reason and Understanding, who said to him, You should do it, not to instill faith in the gods and goddesses, but because our Lord alone inspires people as it pleases him, and frequently by various inspirations. The purity of faith was more seriously threatened when, as in the following lines, a certain respect for pagan cults, and notably of sacrifices, is manifested. Der Dieu les nations gentiles, car en l'amour per ombre sacrifice, les squales prosèque ne fussent utiles, Furen nitmond rendable et fertile, dermant grand feu et tural bénéfice, monstrans per faïque d'amour les officiers, et d'honneur humble, impartis ou quil soyant pour percer ciel et enfer sufficient. Footnote. Formerly, the gentle nations of the gods craved love by humble sacrifices, which, taken for granted that they were useless, were nevertheless profitable and prolific, of much important fruit and of high benefits, which shows by facts that offices of love and of humble homage rendered wherever they were, were sufficient to pierce heaven and hell. End of footnote. This is a stanza of the Diet de Verite, the best poem of Chastelaine, which was inspired by his fidelity to the Duke of Burgundy, and in which, forgetting his ordinary grandiloquence a little, he gives free rein to his political indignation. To find paganism, there was no need for the spirit of the waning Middle Ages to revert to classic literature. The pagan spirit displayed itself as amply as possible in the Roman de la Rose, not in the guise of some mythological phrases, it was not there that the danger lay. 
but in the whole erotic conception and inspiration of this most popular work of all. From the early Middle Ages onward, Venus and Cupid had found a refuge in this domain, but the great pagan who called them to vigorous life and enthroned them was Jean de Mune. By blending with Christian conceptions of eternal bliss the boldest praise of voluptuousness, he had taught numerous generations a very ambiguous attitude towards faith. He had dared to distort Genesis for his impious purposes by making nature complain of men because they neglect her commandment of procreation. In the words, Si maist die le crucifi, mult me reprendant en ma fille. Footnote. So help me God who was crucified, I much repent that I made man. End of footnote. It is astonishing that the church, which so rigorously repressed the slightest deviations from dogma of a speculative character, suffered the teaching of this breviary of the aristocracy, for the Roman de la Rose was nothing less, to be disseminated with impunity. But the essence of the great renewal lies even less in paganism than in pure Latinity. Classic expression and imagery, and even sentiments borrowed from the heathen antiquity, might be a potent stimulus or an indispensable support in the process of cultural renovation. They never were its moving power. The soul of Western Christendom itself was outgrowing medieval forms and modes of thought that had become shackles. The Middle Ages had always lived in the shadow of antiquity, always handled its treasures, or what they had of them, interpreting it according to truly medieval principles. Scholastic theology and chivalry, asceticism and courtesy. Now, by an inward ripening, the mind, after having been so long conversant with the forms of antiquity, began to grasp its spirit. The incomparable simpleness and purity of the ancient culture, its exactitude in conception and of expression, its easy and natural thought and strong interest in men and in life, all this began to dawn upon men's minds. Europe, after having lived in the shadow of antiquity, lived in its sunshine once more. This process of assimilation of the classic spirit, however, was intricate and full of incongruities. The new form and the new spirit do not yet coincide. The classical form may serve to express the old conceptions. More than one humanist chooses the sapphic straw for a pious poem of purely medieval inspiration. Traditional forms, on the other hand, may contain the spirit of the coming age. Nothing is more erroneous than to identify classicism and modern culture. The 15th century in France and the Netherlands is still medieval at heart. The diapason of life had not yet changed. Scholastic thought, with symbolism and strong formalism, the thoroughly dualistic conception of life and the world still dominated. The two poles of the mind continued to be chivalry and hierarchy, Profound pessimism spread a general gloom over life. The Gothic principle prevailed in art, but all these forms and modes were on the wane. A high and strong culture is declining, but at the same time and in the same sphere, new things are being born. The tide is turning. The tone of life is about to change. End of the Waning of the Middle Ages a study of the forms of life, thought, and art in France and the Netherlands in 14th and 15th centuries by Johann Huizinga, translated by Frederick Jan 
Hartman.